There are some famous stories that are worth retelling. And this is a story of a young man named Timmy. Timmy was growing up in Louisiana a few decades ago. In fact, uh, Timmy's only four months off of my own age, so we were growing up at the same time. He was a fan of country music and a fan of baseball. And one of his baseball favorites, which happened to be one of mine also, was a phenomenal major league relief pitcher named Tug McGraw. Now, old Tug McGraw pitched for the New York Mets. He pitched for the Philadelphia Phillies. He led both of them to World Series championships in 1980. He pitched a famous strikeout in the bottom of the ninth with the bases loaded to win the entire World Series. Very, very exciting player. And Little Timmy of Louisiana followed Tug's career game by game, season by season. Well, in an unusual course of events, little Timmy's mother and stepfather divorced when Timmy was 11, and his mother sat down with him and said, I have something to tell you. And as it turns out, Timmy's mother had not told him everything about himself, and she told him that Tug McGraw is your dad. And this came as quite a shock to him, but when he met his idol at the age of 11 and found out that this was in fact true, they formed a relationship, and as a young adult, they then became very close, and in fact, Timmy took his father's name, and you know him as the country music superstar Tim McGraw. And what a wonderful story for him to find out new information about his father. Finding out who his father was changed everything. It had a massive impact on his life. And that's a very touching story for us because as we're going to find, as we continue a conversation that the Lord Jesus is having with false religious leaders of Israel, this conversation is in John eight thirty-seven through 47, we're going to see that that is the crucial question at hand. Who is your father? Who is your father? And the answer to this question really is the difference between forgiveness and judgment and between heaven and hell. Now, what Jesus has done is he's just offered to set free from sin anyone who would abide in his word. This is in verse 31 of chapter 8. And that that person would then know the truth and that truth would, would set him free. But the religious leaders shot back at him. Verse 33, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And we dealt with that text last week. Jesus condemned them as those who continue in unrepentant, habitual sin, that they're actually slaves of sin who will be thrown out of the spiritual house of God because they have never become sons of God. So in answer to their claim to be biological sons of Abraham, which in their minds, the reason this is significant, it guaranteed them a future in God's kingdom. That was their ironclad guarantee. Jesus takes this shot across the bow that they've issued to him. He catches it and he crams it right down their self-righteous little throats. Absolutely wins this argument. And in the next part of this conversation, he's going to condemn them because they're very audaciously, very pridefully going to make claims concerning their spiritual heritage. And Jesus is going to prove to them that their so-called spiritual heritage is worthless and absolutely illegitimate. In fact, these fraudulent, self-righteous religious leaders have essentially, they're going to make three useless paternity claims. First, they're going to say, Abraham is our physical father. Second, they'll say Abraham is our spiritual father, meaning that all of the good works that we do are the same that he would have done. And third, they'll say God himself is our father. 
And to these three claims, Jesus is going to give a shocking result. He's going to take, as it were, the actual paternity test, rip open the results, open it, and he's going to say, no, Satan himself is your father. And in this text, we're going to see that actually all of humanity really has this choice. Keep Satan as your spiritual father or humbly ask God to be your father. And how do you do this? By receiving his son and the forgiveness of sin so that God can be your father as well. And to those who will do so, you can sing joyfully the hymn that we just sang based on Psalm 103, verse 3 of, O my soul, bless God the Father, so poignant. Far as east from west is distant, God has put away our sin like the pity of a father has the Lord's compassion been. And we've been looking at what the hymn writers know, these hymn writers who supply us with rich theological treasure from Scripture put to music so that we can understand and really apply these truths to our hearts and to our minds in a way that's memorable and worship Him with those truths. What about those who are believing what we might call false paternity claims, false paternity tests, making claims that they can't back up? Well, in our text this morning, I want to show you three paternity tests that are going to fail. They're not going to work. Three paternity tests that you can't rely on because they will fool you. They will give you the wrong impression. They will send you in the wrong eternal direction. The first paternity test that will fail is, I'm in the right family. I'm in the right family. We see this beginning in verse 37. Jesus continues, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, he's starting to give them a little hint that maybe they don't belong to the same family. Jesus says, I I get it that you're the biological children of Abraham. Everybody knows that. And he throws it right back at them. He says, you are the biological children of Abraham, so why are you trying to kill me? Why would you do that? And he diagnoses their problem. He says that my word finds no place in you. He says it again in verse 43. You cannot bear to hear my word. Again in verse 45, you do not believe me. Verse 47, you do not hear the words of God because you are not of God. So these Jews are basing their spiritual pride, their their self-professed freedom on their position as offspring of Abraham. But even in the Old Testament, that wasn't true. Even in the Old Testament, being descended from Abraham didn't make any spiritual guarantees at all. Genesis 21 records that the biological son of Abraham, Ishmael, he was cast out of the family. And then you have this warning given to Israel in Jeremiah 9, and you have to understand the background for this warning, the sign of being part of the Abrahamic covenant, the the symbol of being part of the blessed people of God was to be circumcised. But this was just representative. It was just external. It was supposed to represent an inward reality of faith. So listen to this warning that God gives in Jeremiah 9, beginning in verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So even in the Old Testament, just being a a descendant of or associated with Abraham, that wasn't a guarantee of anything. 
The Apostle Paul observed that your lineage makes no guarantees at all. Romans 9, 6, and 7, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. And a very key text that Paul gives us is Romans 2, beginning in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. So these people... The the Jewish leaders, along with the other crowds, they've been listening to Jesus. Many of them were the hypocritical spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests. And they tended to believe Jesus only when he didn't clash with previously held beliefs. In other words, they didn't want to be taught. They wanted to be validated. This happens in the church of Jesus Christ. This happens in this church on occasion that with church attenders sometimes that you like what you hear until you don't understand it and then you get mad. I have email upon email for 21 years to prove that because we don't want to be taught. We want to be validated and this is exactly where they are. And in verse 38, in contrast to the false paternity test of the Jewish leaders, Jesus makes a rightful claim that he is the father's son. He's simply passing on what he's seen, what he's heard in the presence of his father, what John 14, he calls it from my father's house. I'm just telling you what he passed on to me. And the contrast here is that Jesus says they're passing on what they've heard from their father. Now, they don't understand that he's speaking of the devil himself. They're about to in about three verses, but they will just in a moment. And so Jesus takes their claim to be in the right family, and he just destroys it. That won't make any difference at all. This is very telling for us because when he says, you do what you have heard from your father, he is giving them fair warning that you are not in the right family. You're claiming to be in the right family, but you're not in the right family. And I wonder, as I speak to people and as you speak to people, and maybe even as you test your own heart, I wonder what family identity can give someone false security. I might suggest a few family identities that give false security. Your biological family? My mom and dad love the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's going to be kinder to me because of their faith. Not if you don't repent, he won't. How about my church family? I've faithfully attended. I've never actually joined since church membership is for Christians, but I've faithfully attended the church for many, many years. Well, there's a guy who sat faithfully under the teaching of Jesus for three and a half years, and nobody ever names their kid Judas because of that. Church family doesn't make any difference. How about political family? I am amazed how spiritualized political ideology becomes in which someone says, I'm a self-righteous Republican, or I'm a self-righteous Democrat, and I've taken up these causes, and because of that, somehow God is on my side. I wonder how many Republicans and Democrats will find companionship together only in the fact that they meet together at the great white throne judgment because God doesn't care whether they're Republican or Democrat. He cared about the self-righteous part. No political family will help. How about the financial family? Maybe there's someone who's a big shot in the financial community or even donates large amounts of money. That person can fool himself into thinking that he has some sort of self-importance. In Luke chapter 16, 
Jesus contrasted a homeless man of faith named Lazarus with the wealthy man who rejected God. And we see the homeless man in paradise and the wealthy man in torment and judgment. How about community family? Community family. You know, we spent a lot of time in an area in Texas where there were small town rivalries. But it wasn't a friendly rivalry. It was a genuine belief that people of the next town over were less worthy to live than you were. A genuine looking down on others because of your community. Maybe I'm a big shot in the community. Maybe I'm important. Isaiah chapter 14, God says that all the greatest kings in the world will be mocked and ridiculed in hell. So the I'm in the right family paternity test, that's going to fail. It will fail you. There's a second paternity test, though, that can't be relied upon because it'll fool you. This is what we might call the I'm doing the right works test. I'm doing the right works. Now, again, the Jewish leaders assert their heritage, but there's an air of pride and spiritual arrogance to their assertion. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. He just said he knows that, but they say it again. So this isn't just a claim to be biological descendants. This is a claim to be moral, ethical, and spiritual descendants of Abraham, that we are just like him. Well, in fact, Jesus answers this claim by saying, actually, you're nothing like him at all. The second half of verse 39, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. And he indicts them, knowing their heart, knowing that they fully intend to kill him. And in fact, they are the opposite of Abraham. And once again, he implies that they have a different father who is not God. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So Jesus makes a comparison. They're not doing the things Abraham did, and they are doing things that Abraham would never have done, never would have thought to do. So what did Abraham do that the Jewish leaders would not do, and what did the Jewish leaders do that Abraham would never do? I think it's important for us to make this comparison because Jesus was making it. What were the works that Abraham did? What were the good things that he did? Not to gain the favor of God, but because he already had genuine faith in God, the result of his faith. Well, just a few examples. In Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord told Abram, he was not yet renamed Abraham. He told him to leave his country and his home and go to a a new land, which would one day become his. Genesis 12, verse 4, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It just says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. How would you like it if somebody knocked on your door and said, God told me to tell you to move to Timbuktu? Bye. You would say, no. No. I'm not, I don't think so. But Abraham said, yes, I'll go. Abraham defended the helpless. In Genesis 14, when many of his family members were kidnapped, he took trained soldiers and he rescued them. And the ancient priest of God, Melchizedek, he confirmed that God was pleased with this by issuing a blessing that we see recorded in Genesis 14. In Genesis 17, God gave Abraham a somewhat unusual command As a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, Abraham was to be circumcised. Keep in mind, he's 99 years old. And any man who wanted to identify as one of God's people with Abraham had to be circumcised as well. Well, they didn't have a big meeting about this. Genesis 17, 23, 
says, Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. No questions asked. And I don't know about you, but that goes up there high on the list of unusual commands. No questions. And of course, the biggest test and arguably the greatest test that God has ever put anyone through the precious son of Abraham given to him at the age of 100, little Isaac, the one through whom the promised nation of Israel was to come. Genesis 22 records, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. No argument, no questions. Genesis 22.10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, of course, God saved Isaac's life, but Abraham's trust in the Lord was so intensive, so pure, that he would do anything for his God. Jewish leaders of Israel, they didn't have this sort of view of God in the least. They didn't follow at all costs. They didn't cherish God. They didn't humble themselves before God. But the greatest and most obvious thing that Abraham did that these leaders would not do, Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and it counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, meaning Abraham knew he was unrighteous. He needed to be credited. He needed to be have a credit to his account of the righteousness of God because he possessed no righteousness of his own. In other words, as we would say in the New Testament, Abraham was saved by faith. As a matter of fact, Paul told us in Galatians 3, 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so for them to say we're sons of Abraham, it's not passing. But what about the things the Jewish leaders did that Abraham would never do? They berated the Son of God. They challenged the Son of God. They verbally abused the Son of God. Verse 48, they're calling them names. They refused to believe the words of the Son of God. Now, you might say, how can we possibly know what Abraham would have done in that situation? Well, Genesis 18 records that while Abraham was camped at the Oaks of Mamre, three men came to him, and they appeared rather suddenly in front of him, so it was kind of a shock to him. He immediately bowed himself to the earth, He offered to give them water. He gave them a place to rest for a little while. And he told his wife to quickly make some food for them. Now, this wasn't a little snack tray. This wasn't one of those veggie platters that nobody ever eats at parties. It was a substantial meal. He told his wife to make enough bread, the little round flat loaves called cakes, to feed an army She was to make it from three seas of fine flour. To put that in perspective, that's 21 quarts of flour. This is a lot of bread. One of his servants slaughtered a calf so that they could make veal. He brought milk and curds. It's a a butter-like dairy product. This was a feast. This was something you did maybe once a year. And then Abraham, the leader of this great clan, by the way, he was great enough to have his own personal standing army of over 300 trained soldiers. This is a great man. Abraham himself, he stood at attention and he served these three men while they ate. 
One of the men, speaking for all three, proceeded to tell Abraham a message from God, that in the next year his wife Sarah would have the promised son, even though Abraham and Sarah were old. At that point, the men started walking, and Abraham went with them. And one of the men said to the other two, It's time to tell Abraham what's about to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment is coming because of their wickedness. So the spokesman of the three told Abraham that judgment was coming for their great moral rebellion. And then two of the men left to go to the city of Sodom. Genesis 19 confirms that just two of them arrived. One man stayed and Abraham stood before him. And Abraham pleaded with humility and kindness and respect with this man that would these cities be spared if even there were only 10 righteous. And the man said the cities would be spared. And of course, you know the story, there weren't 10. And so the cities were not spared. With these three men, and especially with the one man who was their spokesman, I think it's interesting to understand that Abraham treated them as if Abraham were the slave and these were kings, particularly this one mystery man. Abraham stood by attentively while he ate. He gave him the best of the best of all he had. He was humble. He was kind. He was respectful. And he completely believed the man. Whatever he said, he said, God's going to destroy two cities. I believe you. He said, your 90-year-old wife is going to have a baby. I believe you. I believe everything that you say. He acted like he loved this man and trusted him and knew him and genuinely, authentically believed everything about him. Now, what does this have to do with the things that the Jewish leaders did to Jesus that Abraham would never have done? Well, a careful examination of Genesis 18 and 19 reveals the identity of these men. First of all, Genesis 19 records the arrival of two of the three men in Sodom. It says the two angels came to Sodom. The Genesis 18 in very clear terms identifies the third man, the spokesman. When this man was telling Abraham that his wife would bear a son, Genesis 18 says, The Lord, in your Bible, it is in all capitals, meaning in Hebrew, it is Yahweh, the name of God. Yahweh said, verse 13, Yahweh said, verse 17, Yahweh said, verse 20, Yahweh said, verse 22, Abraham stood before Yahweh, verse 26, Yahweh said, verse 33, and Yahweh went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, there's only one God, Yahweh. And when he appears in physical form, we're told who this is. In Colossians 1.15, that he is the image of the invisible God. In John 1.14, he is the glory of God in the flesh. This man who appeared to Abraham, whom Abraham knew and respected and revered and loved and honored and cherished, can be none other than a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Jesus Christ. Sometimes nicknamed in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. So you see... When Jesus told the Jewish leaders, Abraham would never do what you're doing, it was from personal experience. It was from a personal day. Now, if you've convinced yourself that your paternity test says, I do the right works, you are self-deceived. Because Abraham loved and delighted in the Lord because he was saved by faith. The way he treated God was indicative of previous faith, not, not proof that he was somehow good in and of himself. Abraham knew he wasn't good. Otherwise, he wouldn't have needed to take God's righteousness upon himself. 
And so with Abraham, the true believer can rejoice in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your good works will fail you. First paternity test. I'm in the right family. Fail. Second paternity test. I'm doing the right works. Fails. Here's a third paternity test that cannot be relied upon because it will fool you. I'm the right person. I'm the right person. Maybe, just maybe, since this is me we're talking about, I'm the most special person I know, if I just declare that God is my father, if I just say it out loud, then I must be his child because, of course, I'm so special that maybe just the declaration will make it true. And this is exactly what the Jewish leaders did. And by the way, they get in a backhanded cut down at the same time. Verse 41, the second half. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus has basically charged them with being spiritually illegitimate children. And they protest this strongly. And in fact, there's very much an implied, we were not born of sexual immorality like everyone says you were. Referring, of course, to the virgin birth of Christ since his mother Mary was pregnant prior to her marriage to Joseph. Now they've claimed that God is their father as if just saying it makes it true. So Jesus says essentially, well, let me give you two tests and let's see how you do. So he gives two tests. We might call them very simply the love test and the knowledge test. First, the love test in verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This is the polar opposite of seeking to kill someone. They would love him. They would love and welcome Christ as being sent from God. And they would do as Abraham did. They would heartily welcome him. I think of Zacchaeus, little Zacchaeus, who had the opportunity to repent before Christ. And Christ said something beautiful to him. He said to him, I'm going to dine in your house tonight. And salvation has come to your house because he humbled himself and he was happy for that. And we contrast that when Jesus dines in the home of Simon the Pharisee and Jesus is treated worse than a slave. He's treated in an undignified fashion. The love test. If you are children of the father, then you would love the son. You would love me. And then he gives them the knowledge test. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And the implication is you cannot bear to hear and obey my word. True knowledge and understanding is impossible for them. They have not been born from above. Jesus said in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, meaning you can't get to it and you can't grasp it. They're not drawn by the Father. John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He said in John 6, 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. You don't know who I am because you refuse to and because that knowledge has not been given to you. The love test, fail. Knowledge test, fail. And by the way, these are to the most biblically educated men in Israel. And they failed. It's a very simple litmus test. 
that if you claim God as your father, then you must have claimed Christ as your savior. There's no getting to God without Christ. You must love and you must know him. And so in Jesus' day, any Jew who's not excited to receive and embrace the Son of God certainly cannot, by definition, love God the Father, and he is not their father. Now, this is just the part where Jesus is less direct. This is just where he's being nice. Now he makes a fist, essentially, and punches them in the spiritual sternum, just right in the middle, knocks the wind out of them. They're choosing not to love Christ. They're choosing not to know Christ. They're choosing to not listen, and by implication, to not obey. Why? Verse 44, here's the paternity test results. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So Jesus identifies the true results of the paternity test. The devil himself is their father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He lies because it's his character to lie. He's a liar. He's a murderer. How do those two go together? And how is it that this is all the way from the beginning? Well, clearly, Jesus is referring to the Garden of Eden. When Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was through a lie that he murdered them. How did that work? God told Adam in Genesis 2.17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, verse 4, Satan said, you will not surely die. He lied. And it resulted in the fall of mankind into sin. It resulted in the eventual deaths of Adam and Eve and the murder of all mankind. Do you understand that Satan is so massively wicked? He is responsible for the death of everyone. Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came to the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Jesus says to these leaders, You're just like your dad. You're just like him. What is their real father like? What is he like? I want to take a moment to show you, if you might keep a finger in John chapter 8 and turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 And while you're finding that, let me just give you a little context here. Isaiah 14 is a declaration that all the wicked powerful of all of history will eventually be overthrown and they'll be equalized in death and in judgment, no matter how great they were, whether they're a a Stalin or a Hitler or an Alexander the Great or any of the wicked leaders you can possibly imagine, no matter how many people they controlled and murdered in this life, they'll all be degraded down to nothing. All great leaders on this earth will be degraded down because they would not worship God. And so that's what Isaiah 14, the, the bulk of the chapter is about. And in verses 12 through 14, there's some interesting features, some features which really transcend the ability or the scope of even the most powerful of of human leaders. These are features which seem to suggest an ultimate leader, an ultimate despot. The ultimate prideful tyrant is in view here. This is Satan himself. And in these verses, along with Ezekiel chapter 28, 12 through 19, it gives us really our clearest picture of the actual fall of Satan. 
Here we have him in Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, it's not unusual in Isaiah at all for there to be a, an immediate meaning and a farther, bigger meaning or a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment when we're speaking of prophecy. This usurper, this tyrant is called the day star. The Latin equivalent of this Hebrew word was translated by the King James Version as Lucifer. So Lucifer is just really the Latin version of day star. It's not really a, a proper name at all. Daystar, son of dawn. He was a spectacular, a, a brilliant creature, a glorious creation of God. Now, why do you think, do you ever wonder why in the Garden of Eden, Eve had no problem talking to a serpent? Why that wasn't unusual? Well, we have an answer to that. Why was she comfortable with this being? Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen says of this same being, you were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. And what was he doing there? You were an anointed guardian cherub, an angel. I placed you. You were in the holy mountain of God. In other words, his job there was to be this great, incredible angel of light who guarded and took care of Adam and Eve. But God says in Ezekiel 28, 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. In 1 Timothy 3, 6, the apostle Paul identified Satan's sin as being puffed up with conceit. And so the day star, Satan, makes five I will statements here in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. I will ascend to heaven. It seems that Satan was originally created as the lead cherub, the head angel, but he desires to occupy the place of God. He says, secondly, I will set my throne on high above the stars of God. Now, what does that mean? Does that just mean he wants to be way up in the air? No. Satan was the chief angel. The stars of God refer to other angels. They're called stars in Job 38, 7, when they shouted for joy at the creation of the world. If he's already the chief angel, to be above the stars of God is to sit on the throne of God himself. In other words, for him being second was no longer good enough. He makes a third I will statement. I will sit on the mount of assembly, the the place of ruling the earth. The mount of assembly is the center of God's kingdom on earth, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. In other words, I want to have the place of Messiah. I want to replace the Son of God. He makes a fourth I will statement. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Now we're in the midst of some obviously figurative language. Satan is not saying he wants to go higher than the atmospheric clouds. It seems that the best reference and connection to clouds is with the glory of God. That connection is made very clear in Exodus 13, Job 37, Matthew 26, Revelation 14. In other words... Satan was no longer content to just reflect the glory of God. He wanted to be equal to or above the glory of God. And he makes a final I will statement. 
the clearest of all, I will make myself like the Most High. The Most High is a title for God that refers to his dominion over heaven, his dominion over earth. In fact, Genesis 14, 19 calls him God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And I want you to be very clear about this. Satan did not want to be unlike God. He respected God's power and his authority. He just wanted it for himself. He just wanted it for himself. So what happened to Satan as a result? He was banished from his privilege and position before God. He experienced the corruption of his character. The one who is the day star, the son of dawn, now has disgusting names in scripture. He's called Satan, which means adversary. He's called the devil, which means accuser. He's called the serpent. He's called the great dragon. He's called Beelzebul, which means the lord of the filth. He's called a ruler and a prince. He's the ruler of the, the current world system, which directly opposes God. He also experienced a perversion of his power. Satan's power was once used for God's glory and supposedly to be a help and a service to mankind in the Garden of Eden and instead he used it to deceive mankind in the sinning against God. He did retain mighty power. He did not retain almighty power. God has relegated him to be the prince of the power of the air considering that he was likely the second most powerful being in all of creation. Being demoted to just earth is definitely a step down. And he is destined for eternal torment. Verse 15 of Isaiah 14 says, But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Revelation 20 verse 10, At the end of the age, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, known elsewhere in scripture as hell. Do not believe the jokes and the lousy theology which says that Satan is in hell and that's his home. He doesn't want to be there any more than you do. But that is his destiny. But he is still around. And he's dangerous. J.I. Packer says the picture of Satan is that, quote, of unimaginable meanness, malice, fury, and cruelty directed against God, against God's truth, and against those to whom God has extended his saving love. Listen, Satan is older than you. He is smarter than you. He is more powerful than you. You will not out-experience him. You will not outsmart him. You will not overpower him. You will not do that. He disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5. He's pictured as an evil dragon, Revelation 12. He is Christ's sworn enemy. He will probe for your weaknesses. He will misdirect your strengths. He will undermine your faith. He will undermine your hope. He will undermine your character. He will lead you right into that one spot where you can morally fail worse than you ever thought possible. In fact, Ephesians 6.16 says he will send flaming darts, very specifically aimed arrows to shake your faith to the core. And so he should be taken seriously. We do not joke about coming against Satan. The one who replaced him, Michael the archangel, even said he wouldn't go up against him. He leaves that to the Lord. He should be taken seriously, but not to the point of abject terror. Not at all. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do you resist the devil? Well, he just said, submit yourselves to God. Be submissive to him. Be obedient. Resist Satan's plan for you by obeying God's plan for you. There's only two plans for your life, and you can make a choice of one or the other every day. 
1 Peter 5, 9 and 10 tells us to resist him firm in your faith. How? By believing the Lord, firm in your faith. He is a formidable enemy, but he's a defeated enemy. He was first beaten at the cross, and he has no more power than God allows him to have until his final judgment day. And of course, we revel and we rejoice in 1 John 4, verse 4, which says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you, that is Christ, is greater than he who is in the world, that is Satan. And so we do have access to that power. Now, that helps us understand back in John chapter 8, why does Jesus say that these unbelievers are children of Satan? Because just like Satan, just like their father, they would rule in God's place. Just like their father, they would murder Messiah. They would want that. Satan wanted to get rid of Messiah. These leaders want to get rid of Messiah. They're just like their daddy. The DNA proves it. And Jesus gives one more nail in their spiritual coffins. His logic is, Since you're of your father, who is the father of lies, then it follows that when I tell you the truth, you won't believe me. He says in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? In other words, he's challenging them. If I am not of God, then I must be a liar. Can you prove it? Can you prove that one thing I've told you is a lie? If you can't, then I'm telling you the truth. If I'm telling you the truth, I must be from God. And if I'm from God, why won't you believe me? And he closes that logical loop. They have no place to run. But he answers his own question. Verse 47, before they can say anything, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What a condemnation. What a condemnation. They would rather listen to their own father. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Paul said? Satan believes the gospel. He knows it's true. He knows that Christ is our way out. And so he can't fight the truth, but he blinds people to it. Just declaring God to be your father does nothing whatsoever. I don't know how many times somebody has claimed to me when I ask them the state of their souls, oh yeah, God God and I are on good terms, but they can't explain why. Oh yeah, the the man upstairs and I, we, we get along just fine. That doesn't mean anything because that's not what he would say. Just believing that you're so special that, of course, you must be God's child is nothing but arrogance and prideful self-deception. You can declare anything you want. That doesn't make it true. What you need, what you needed, if you know Christ, was for God to do the declaring, for him to declare you his child. He's the only one who can make those declarations. And that declaration only comes by the mercy and the kindness of God towards you. So how did our test go? Paternity test number one, I'm in the right family. Fail. Paternity test number two, I'm doing the right works. Fail. Paternity test number three, I'm the right person. Fail. Small problem. These are precisely the paternity tests you must pass 
in order to be a child of the living God. But you've already failed them on your own. You've already failed. Well, we get good news from Galatians chapter 4. Just listen. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If I'm adopted by God through Christ, I'm in the right family. Galatians 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the children of God. They're given the Spirit of God. And in the very next chapter in Galatians, says that the Spirit of God produces something in true believers. The Spirit of God produces love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If I'm demonstrating the evidence of faith and forgiveness of sin by the power of the Spirit, and if, as James says in James 2.18, I will show you my faith by my works, the evidence of a changed life, then not only am I in the right family, I'm doing the right works. And Galatians 4.7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. If through Christ I'm a son, a daughter, and an heir through God, now because of Christ, I'm the right person. To be a child of the living God, you must pass those three tests. But you can't pass them on your own. So how do you pass? Both the Old and the New Testaments proclaim everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't pass them by yourself, but you can identify with the one who always has passed them, who always has been in the right family, who always has done the right works, and who always has been the right person. You can only pass those tests if you identify with Christ. There's no other way. And the one who would simply humble himself to confess that I failed test number one, test number two, test number three, and to simply ask, God, I don't dare call you father yet, but God, I need to switch families. I'm in the wrong family. Might I call you father Jesus said that anyone who says that he will never cast out that you want to stop being a child of Satan become a child of God the answer to that question is always yes now when your paternity test is opened at the judgment throne of God it will say child of the living God younger brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ far as east from west is distant God has put away our sin like the pity of a father has the Lord's compassion been. Is he not good? He's good. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of the words of Jesus. They are so simple, so clear, so easy to understand. And yet to those who would not listen, to those who would rebel against you, they are a mystery. They are an enigma. They don't make any sense. And how easily... And how gratefully we even address you as Father. Because you have invited us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have changed us. You have regenerated us. You have given us a new heart, a heart of flesh to obey you, to love you, to instinctively do the right thing, to instinctively know what we are to do. Of course, the part that we're still working on, Lord, is doing the right works. Our works don't save us. We know that. We understand that. But they are those things that we do which prove our salvation. They are those things we do that demonstrate our love for you. 
And so how sad it is when, as Ephesians 4 speaks, of when a believer grieves the Holy Spirit by the misuse of the tongue, when we grieve the head of the church by rebelling in the church, when we grieve one another by sinning against each other. And so help us, Lord, to act more like our eldest brother, Jesus. Help us to become more and more like him until that great and glorious day when you will lead us home and complete that transformation. For when we see him, we will become like him because we will see him as he is. For that, we thank you. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.